So our Bible reading for this morning comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 20. I'm reading from the NLV. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know that what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feed you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors have known, to teach, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these forty years. Know then in your heart that as man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you today. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, the thirsty and waterless land, with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of the hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well for you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed, like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, and you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. This is God's word. Good morning, everybody. And uh, Lauren has prayed, so we won't pray again. But I would ask if you'd like to turn in your booklets to what I think is page six, perhaps. Is that the outline? Page six in your booklet. Great. Talk number two. One of my favourite stories when I'm taking a wedding is of a young man who goes down to the coffee bar on the morning of his honeymoon. And uh, as he's there ordering his cup of coffee, the lady behind the counter says to him, seeing the shiny ring on his finger, you're on your honeymoon, aren't you? And he says, yes. And she says, um, it's a funny thing, you know, when I was on my honeymoon, I was reading A Tale of Two Cities, and within the year we had twins. And a man a little further down the bar says, that's funny, he says, my wife was reading The Three Musketeers, and within the year we had triplets. And the young man gets very pale and he says, I've got to get back to my room. My wife's reading Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and I'm telling you that because we're about to look at the subject in Deuteronomy of being married to God, the covenant, the marriage covenant. And uh, last night I began a little introduction to the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Old Testament. It's a book that the Lord Jesus obviously loved very much. And even as we were hearing our reading from um, Deuteronomy chapter 8, I was reminded that Jesus was probably thinking about the book of Deuteronomy when he was being tempted in the wilderness. You remember he was in the wilderness for 40 days, not 40 years, but 40 days. And he quoted again and again from the book of Deuteronomy, not living by bread alone, etc. So it's a very wonderful book, the book of Deuteronomy. As I mentioned last night, it's considered by some to be the backbone of the Old Testament because it kind of pulls everything together. And I mentioned last night as well two important things. First, it is possible to study the book of Deuteronomy like we're doing in one weekend because the book is set out like a treaty. And I mentioned last night that if you were conducting a treaty with a group that you had conquered, you would begin with a little bit of a recap of where you come from. You would then talk about the relationship which will exist between you and me. You would then talk about how some of the details of life would be worked out. And then you would ask the group who was listening to make a decision. And that's what we're going to do over the weekend. Last night we spent a little bit on the recap, the journey so far through the wilderness. This morning we're going to think about the relationship, God and his people. And then this afternoon we'll look at some of the stipulations or details of how to live for God. Very practical, very wonderful. And tomorrow morning we'll look at the section where Moses, Moses like an evangelist, basically asks people to respond and to come and to trust God. But I also mentioned last night that we mustn't read the book of Deuteronomy as if it is just some rules which we must somehow try and keep in order to get into the good books of God. That would be a great mistake. And because it's very much part of our DNA to keep thinking that we earn our salvation, if you think in your brain, I must be good to get into God's good books, Please don't think that's what the Bible says. The Bible says you come to him by faith and then he will enable you to live a brand new life. So get the life, then you'll live the life. It's not live the life and you'll get the life. Get it, then live it. So I mentioned last night that we could uh, talk about Deuteronomy using the acronym of MICE, M-I-C-E. Does anyone remember this? Moses, M, Moses preached Deuteronomy, yes he did, on the edge of the promised land. I, Israel failed Deuteronomy, yes they did, despite listening, despite listening, they didn't do it. C, Christ lived Deuteronomy, obeyed Deuteronomy, he's the only hope we have. E, everybody who trusts him is secure, okay? M-I-C-E. Moses preached it. Israel failed it. Christ obeyed it. Everyone who takes refuge in Christ is safe. We mustn't fall into the trap of thinking the Israelites were stupid. We're going to be great. No, 
Israelites failed, we failed. The only hope we have is our Saviour. So we're going to um, think about chapters 5 to 11, which is a crazy thing to do in the short amount of time we have, but we'll do our best. It would make a good series, Deuteronomy 5 to 11. If you're wondering what to do with your growth group, you could do worse than study Deuteronomy 5 to 11. And um, Deuteronomy 5 to 11, if I might explain this, is going to talk about the relationship that God has with his people in seven different diamonds. So don't imagine that chapter 5 is the same as 6, or 6 is the same as 7. They're all saying different things. But they're going to tell us the privilege of belonging to God, and then the responsibility. Privilege, responsibility, in seven different ways. So chapter 5, you might like to turn it up, I've called on the outline, Rescued to Respond. Rescued to respond. Has anybody here ever been rescued in the surf? Nobody? I've been rescued twice. It's very embarrassing. There you are, drowning. Help. Somebody comes out. You ever watch Bondi Rescue? One of those guys in blue comes out on his board, brings me in puffing and panting onto the sand. I'm rescued, and now there's a response. That's what chapter 5 is about, rescued to respond. So in chapter 5, verse 3, Moses says this, Listen, Israel, it was not with our ancestors that God made the covenant, meaning it was not just with our ancestors God made the covenant. This covenant is for you. God held out his hand to say, I will... You have responded by saying, I will. You're his people. So it was not just with the people at Sinai. It was with you as well. And, of course, it was a covenant of grace. If you look at chapter 5, verse 6, you'll see that it says, I rescued you. I brought you out of slavery. And then he says, this is how you're to live, from verse 7. So, my friends, was the Old Testament, here's a question for you, was the Old Testament a book of law, be good, and eventually you'll get home, or was it a book of grace? The answer is it was a book of grace. The Old Testament was a book of grace. The New Testament is a book of grace. Grace runs right through the Bible. And so we read in chapter 5, verse 6, I rescued you because, verse 7, now you're going to respond. I saved you, verse 6, now you're going to serve. I liberated you, verse 6, now you're going to keep the law. The law was not the way into the family of God. The law was the way to live out being in the family of God. Is this relevant? It is highly relevant. If you were to walk into the local suburb or walk around your own suburb and ask a hundred people on the street, if you were to stand at the early gates one day, and uh, Jesus was to say to you, why should I welcome you into heaven? What would you say? 99 people, if not 100, would say something like this. If there was such a situation, it's because I have lived a pretty good life. I've not done anything seriously wrong, and so what they're doing is they're talking law. I think I'll be saved by law keeping. 
I think it's because I'm a pretty good person. So the secular world thinks of trophy theology. It's my trophy. The Bible thinks of gift. It's grace. And the Ten Commandments which are listed in Deuteronomy 5 are pretty well a restatement of Exodus 20. But there's one difference, and that is that the Sabbath in Deuteronomy 5 is traceable to salvation out of Egypt rather than just back to creation. So Moses in Exodus is hearing that the Sabbath is to be thought of because God created the world in six days and rested. But in Deuteronomy, he traces the Sabbath back to rescue, to put emphasis on their rescue. Now, the response to all of the Ten Commandments in the Deuteronomy chapter 5 is very key. The people say in verses 24, 27, this is great. We're going to do this. We like these commandments. We're going to obey. Look at what God says in verses 28 and 29. It's just talk. They're not going to do this. If only their hearts were changed. So God knows, even as he gives the law, that his people are not going to obey the law. But he will one day change their hearts. And you remember the prophets talked about having a heart of stone replaced by a heart of flesh. And this, of course, would come when Christ carries away our sin and brings his Holy Spirit to change our heart. And the Holy Spirit, of course, enables us to obey the word of God, not perfectly, but better. And so when I get up in the morning, my heart, my sinful heart, is kind of in reverse more interested in me and disobedience than it is in God and obedience. That's my natural heart and yours as well. But God, by his spirit, puts his spirit into our heart and enables us to think about his will and his glory with a newness. So that's chapter 6. Okay? Uh, sorry, chapter 5. Chapter 6, we're up to now. Chapter 6 I've called Welfare and Danger. And in this particular chapter, we discover that there is one God, and the danger, of course, is to go and find other gods. So we're told in chapters 6, 1 to 4, that the one God, that is Yahweh, Jehovah, is keen to bless his people. The danger from chapter 6, verse 10, is they'll forget God and go with other gods, especially when things get easy. Uh, by the way, the prophets... Sorry, the, the, the idols, the idols in the promised land, the idols in the promised land were not as dopey as we think they were. The idols in the promised land were very popular, very powerful according to the people in the land, and they were very permissive. I mean, there would be plenty of people in this room who would find some of the idols of the promised land very attractive, very tempting. So we mustn't think of the idols as just being a block of stone which it would be stupid to bow down to. When you got into the promised land and you were hearing on a regular basis that Baal was in charge of agriculture, it was very tempting to hedge your bets and give half yourself to Yahweh and half yourself to Baal in the hope of keeping everybody happy. But Deuteronomy 6 is saying, no, there is only one God. There isn't a Baal up there. So don't divide your heart and don't dishonor God. In chapter 6, verse 4, we read these famous words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. 
uh, the word uh, hear, hear, O Israel, is the famous word Shema, which is the word to listen. So Moses says, I'm reminding you that the other gods that you're going to hear about are not real. Idolatry, of course, is real. People are always bowing down to other gods, but the gods themselves are not really gods. Do you remember when um, Elijah went up the mountain and um, they had a contest? Do you remember this in 1 Kings 19? And um, basically, Elijah the prophet said to the prophets of Baal, Baal, the god of agriculture and productivity, let's have a competition on the top of the mountain. And uh, we're going to put a, a bull down, one each, and we're going to pray to our God and see which God answers by fire, burning up the idol, uh, burning up the sacrifice. And so um, the prophets of Baal started calling out to Baal, come on, Baal, burn the sacrifice, burn the sacrifice. Absolutely nothing happened. It says in the text, there was silence, there was nothing, there was nobody. And then Elijah simply said, Oh God, show yourself to be real and great. And boom, the sacrifice burned up in front of them. And this was, of course, a way of showing that God was real and the other, prof the other idols were not. So this one God, says Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, has everything under control. You don't need to bet both ways. Give him your heart. He is in charge of everything. If you give him your heart, he will be honoured and you, of course, will be integrated and not disintegrated. And then chapter 6, verse 7, teach this to your children again as you sit with them and as you walk with them and as you lie down. Build your parenting into your lives together. As I said last night, don't leave it to the Sunday school teachers to raise your children spiritually, but talk to them about things all the time. When uh, Deuteronomy 6 mentions tying symbols to your hands, your foreheads and your door frames, I wonder whether this was symbolic. I know the Jewish people today will often have things tied to their foreheads, side of their head, on their door frame, frames, but I wonder whether this was really God saying, keep them close to your head, keep them close to your heart, keep them close to your house. Now, the dangers in Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 to 12, are that you will, first of all, forget God when everything is going well, and we do. You notice that your prayer life is often best the night before you go in for surgery or have an exam. We suddenly find ourselves able to miraculously pray, don't we? So be careful, says uh, Moses, that you don't forget God when all is well. Be careful that you don't change uh, your allegiance, verses 14 to 15, and be careful you don't give up when trouble comes. It's always sad, isn't it, when somebody is going through a tough time and they turn away from God at the very time that they should turn to Him. We've got to um, help people to turn to Him and not away. Now, when the boy, chapter 6, verse 20, in the family says, why do we have all these laws to keep? And the answer could come back, well, because God is really tough. Actually, in chapter 6, verse 21, the answer comes back because God has been so good to us. He's rescued us. He's brought us out of the surf and put us on the beach. And therefore, we're going to try our best to live for him. So that's chapter 6, welfare in danger. Chapter 7, I've called this, you are loved, 
so love back. You see in chapter 7 that God is going to drive out the nations and he's going to get drive out the nations, Moses says, because he loves you. Verses 7 to 9. Would somebody just read in a loud voice Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 9? These are very famous verses and you ought to know them. At least you ought to know where they are. Would somebody in a loud voice read Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 9? Thank you. Hold on. Up. Can you speak up as loud as you can? Thank you very much. So the point of those three verses is the Lord loved you, not because you were the most numerous or the most powerful or the most attractive or the cleverest, but he loved you. And what's the answer? Because he, because he loved you. So, so why does the sun come down on us? Have we drawn the sun down to us? No, the sun just comes down on us. It's God's decision. And the love of God comes down on his people because he has decided. It's got nothing to do with numbers, greatness, potential, attractiveness, IQ. It's because he has chosen to love us. They're very, very wonderful verses. And therefore, we're told in chapter 7, we're not to make a treaty entering into marriage with sin. And the verses in chapter 7 are very confronting because they talk about getting rid of idolatry in a ruthless way, smashing it to pieces like you would remove cancer from a body or flush drugs down the toilet if you were tempted or get a weirdo stranger out of your primary school if he was hanging around in a weird way. This is ruthless, desperate, necessary removal of things that are dangerous. <clears throat> so we're told in chapter 7, God chose you and therefore you must respond well to him. Is the promised land, chapter 7, verse 17, going to be too difficult to get into? No. The God who brought you out of Egypt, says God, is going to get you into the promised land. That's a lovely thing to remember. Here they are on the edge of the promised land. They're not a professional army. They've been asked to go in and take a land which is not theirs, but is going to be given to them. The people of the land, of course, are going to respond powerfully. And the people of Israel on the edge of the promised land are asking the question, are we going to make it? And Moses says, just remember that God got you out of Egypt. It's one of those lovely looking back at how God has helped you in the past to remember that he will help you in the future. Chapter 8, I've called God Trained You, Therefore Be Wise. This is the passage that was read for us a few minutes ago by Caleb. Caleb, as you know, was one of only two who went into the Promised Land. And Joshua, is there a Joshua here today? Great. <laughs> Caleb and Joshua, the only two. Take note. Chapter 8. 
We read in chapter 8, verse 2, that God led and tested his people in the wilderness, meaning he trained them. Now, dear friends, have you noticed that God has to put you through a few tests every now and again to make your faith grow? Have you noticed this? You just don't get muscly lying on the couch in front of the television. Have you noticed this? You don't really learn to swim paddling in a paddling pool. It's when God puts you into some deep water, he will develop your faith and your muscles. And in chapter 8, he, he brought them through the wilderness, not just as a punishment for their unbelief and disobedience, but also to train and to test them, to teach them that they must trust him, that they had nobody else who they could trust. And therefore, chapter 8, verse 10 says, don't forget him. What is the difference between testing by God and tempting by the devil? They're actually the same word in the Greek, to test or to tempt. And I think the answer is this, that when God tests you, it's to strengthen the friendship. When the devil tempts you, it's to stretch the friendship. Okay, so imagine you're going through a difficulty. You just cannot easily solve it. Ask yourself the question, is this causing me to turn to him and to look to him? Then it sounds like you're being tested in the best possible way. Is this causing you to turn away from him and to say, well, I give up on him because he hasn't been good for me? That sounds like you're being tempted. How did the daily bread, the manna bread, which you remember came down and they went and found it every morning on the ground, how did that teach them that they don't live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Well, the answer is because they had nothing to do with the arrival of the manna bread, nothing at all. It taught them that it was only God and his word, his promise to look after them, which they could trust. They contributed nothing to that bread. It came from God and his faithfulness every day. And we read in chapter 8, verse 4, that as he took them through the wilderness, this is amazing, chapter 8, verse 4, he was so sovereign, so brilliant, so powerful, that he actually looked after their sandals. How do you look after the sandals of a million people as they walk for 40 years through the wilderness? You've got to be God to do that, really, haven't you? The sovereignty of God. Making sure that the sandals of a million people don't wear out through the 40-year wilderness. And therefore, he says, be wise, because this is the God you're dealing with. He's good and he's great. Don't forget, verse 10, or become proud or stupid. <clears throat> Don't imagine, verse 17, that you produced everything. <clears throat> Isn't um, 8.18 wonderful? God gives you the ability to make money. I mean, are any of you making money? You say, I'm making a little bit. Some of you may making more than others. God gives you the ability to do that. If he takes away the ability, you don't do anything. That's how great he is. He is completely in charge of our brain cells and our breathing and our pulse and every ability and capability that we have. 
And therefore, there's something going wrong if we decide that we will distrust him or turn away from him. But rather, we must lean in to him and find that he's good and great. That's chapter 8. God trained you, be wise. Chapter 9. Uh, chapter 9 I've called Success and Humility. You'll see in chapter 9, verses 1, 2, and 3, um, Moses said, you're going to have success because God's going to fight. You're going to go into the promised land and you're going to make it. Um, God, God is a fighter. You know, he may be a shepherd, but he's also a fighter. He's a warrior. Uh, but then he says in chapter 9 again, verses 4 and 6, Beware of boasting when you get into the promised land and saying to yourself, I think we got the promised land because we're so good. That would be a mistake. We read in chapter 9 of Deuteronomy, No, no, beware of boasting. No, says God, verse 5 of chapter 9, It's not your righteousness. Verse 6, it's not your righteousness. It's got more to do with their wickedness, verse 4 and 5. So what was the problem in Deuteronomy 8? They said, we're so clever. What was the problem in chapter 9? They said, we're so good. And God has to say to both of them, no, no, I give you the abilities. And it's got more to do with their wickedness than your righteousness. In fact, says Moses, you're not a gold medal, people. He goes on in chapter 9 to speak about the golden calf incident which some of you will remember from the book of Exodus. And God says to these people, you're not a gold medal people who I'm rewarding because you're so great. You're really a gold calf people who will disappear in a second. Do you remember the incident with the golden calf? They just received the commandments at Mount Sinai. Moses is up the mountain. He's been gone for a long time. The people get impatient and they say, let's make a little statue and that will be our sort of God to focus on. And so they make a golden calf, which undoubtedly was a little model of something that had been back in Egypt. And of course, they weren't saying we want to give up on Yahweh, but what they're saying is we're going to kind of make him small. We're going to kind of make him, we're going to domesticate him so that he'll cooperate with us and we'll focus on him like this. And you remember that uh, up the top of the mountain, God said to Moses, you better go down the mountain because the people have already begun to turn away. And Moses comes down the mountain and he sees that they have basically turned to idolatry and he smashes the Ten Commandments tablets and he grinds them to powder and makes them drink the powder. This is um, Israel being adulterous on their honeymoon. I remember meeting a lady whose husband on their honeymoon committed adultery. You know, having gone away to Fiji or something like that, he just went and slept with somebody else on, on the honeymoon. And here is the people of Israel basically being idolatrous on the honeymoon, just as God has brought them to the mountain. For the marriage ceremony, suddenly there they are going off into idolatry. And this is what Moses reminds people. You need to know what your heart is like. And this is one of the great things about our fellowship, really, isn't it? I mean, if we think we come together as a church because we're great people, we'll just have lots of rivalry and pride. But if we come together knowing that we're sinful people with a very great saviour, 
there'll be much thanks to him and there'll be much fellowship. I mean, there's nothing worse than being in a church, is there, where everybody's pretending to be pious. There's nothing worse than being in a church where you know your own sins, but everybody else is pretending that they're sinless. And even when you get into your triplets in a little bit of time, it's a great thing, isn't it, to be able to share some struggles and not some piety. And so Moses is very carefully teaching the people of Israel that they're actually more golden calf people than gold medal people. Well, let's go quickly to chapter 10. This is called Mercy and Fear. And God, in his mercy, chapter 10, arranged for a fresh start. He said to Moses, you remember, build, uh, create two more stone tablets and uh, God would write on them the Ten Commandments. By the way, does anybody know why there are two stone tablets? We, we tend to think, don't we, that um, God put one to five of the commandments on one and six to ten on the other. Because if you go to old churches, you'll see the commandments on tablets at the front of the building, 1 to 5, 6 to 10. But actually there are two stone tablets because there's two people in a treaty. There's a set of the commandments for one party and there's a set for the other party. Now, of course, God didn't need a set for himself. He knew them. And so they would put their copy in the tent where they met with him and they put his copy in the tent where they met with him as well. That's why there's two stone tablets. It's the treaty of two parties. Why are most of the commandments negative? You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. It looks so restrictive and unfriendly, doesn't it? But actually, you will know yourself that if the commandments were all positive, you would be in a kind of a totalitarian regime, being instructed what to do like robots. It's the negative that gives you the freedom let me explain. If you go to a park this afternoon, let's imagine miraculously the sun comes out and you go to a park and you see a sign as you enter the park and it says, you will walk a hundred paces, you will sit for 30 minutes, you will play throw the ball, you will eat two sandwiches, you will walk out quietly. You're in a very strange place, aren't you? But if you go into a park and it says, don't uproot the trees, don't set fire to the swings, you're really given a lot of freedom, aren't you? It's basically just outlining a couple of things not to do. Otherwise, enjoy yourself. And the commandments, you see, are in the negative because God wants you to be free. He will warn you of the dangers, but he wants you to be free. So what does God want in chapter 10? He wants, them, he wants the people to fear him, that is to respect him, not to be terrified. He wants the people to serve him with trust and obedience. And he wants the people to know him. They, he wants the people to know that he's massive, that he runs the heavens. He wants the people to know that he's personal, that he is committed to the fatherless and the widow. He wants the people to know that he's mighty and merciful. And so he says, be soft-hearted. Chapter 10, verse 21. God is your praise. 
I'll just tell you very quickly that a long time ago, I heard Tim Keller tell a story, which I've always loved, of when he was a young man and he went on a camp like this, and he said, I had very small views of Jesus. And the person who was giving the talks said as an illustration, I want you to imagine that you have got to make a model of the galaxy in which we live. And the model of the galaxy is going to go like this, that the distance from the earth to the sun is going to be the thickness of a piece of paper. So that's your model scale. Earth to sun, thickness of a piece of paper. How big a box do you need to make a model of the galaxy in which we live? And the answer is you need a box that's 700 kilometres by 700 kilometres by 500 kilometres to make a model of the galaxy in which we live. And the speaker said, since the Lord Jesus has made and governs billions of galaxies, you don't get to put him in your back pocket. It's a great reminder, isn't it, about the majesty of Jesus Christ. I mean, he makes the AFL look little, doesn't he? He makes even the rugby league look little. But he's also merciful. He's interested in the fatherless and the widow. He's interested in the crying child. He's at, he's at work in the cells and the DNA of every human. So therefore, says Moses, don't turn your back on him. And finally, chapter 11, which I've called Grace and Obedience, he says again in chapter 11, help your children to appreciate the Lord. Remember, they weren't there at Mount Sinai. They weren't there crossing the Red Sea out of Egypt. So help them to know and appreciate the Lord. And know that the land, chapter 11, verse 10, that you're entering into is very special. Moses says the water is not going to be by foot. It's going to be by heaven. What does he mean? I think he means that when you're in the wilderness, you didn't have any power over water. It had to come from God. And when you were in Egypt, water was by foot, which either means that you worked little irrigation panels with your feet, or you had to travel to get your water. But when you get into the promised land, says Moses, it's going to come plenteously from heaven and look after you, and everything will grow. Because in the end, you see, God is behind all the blessings that come down to us. So Moses says in chapter 11, therefore choose blessing or curse. When you walk into the promised land, there'll be two mountains. One's called Gerizim, one's called Ebal. And you're to get some people to stand on Gerizim and call out the blessings of following God. And you're to get some people to stand on Ebal and they're to call out the curses of turning away from God. So God couldn't really be, be clearer. I've rescued you. I want you to walk with me. I want you to trust me. And I want you to obey me. Now, friends, what are we going to do with these chapters? Seven chapters about a covenant relationship with God. And I want to say again, let's not imagine that we're going to do this successfully, proudly, and earn our salvation. We're not. We're not that sort of people. What we do need to be thankful for is that God has sent into the world the true Israelite, Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus Christ has walked this faithfulness perfectly. And he who said no to sin every hour of every day, and yes to God every hour of every day, took himself along to the cross, and at the cross he took on his back the sins of you and me, who say no to God regularly, and yes to sin regularly. Christ took all our disobedience on his back and he paid the penalty in order to offer to us at his expense fellowship with God, a great and a good God forever. Now I've probably gone over my time, but I just wanted to finish by reading something to you which John Piper wrote on the subject of rain. So do I have I got one more minute? Have I gone way over time? I think you'll appreciate this. Just a little uh, devotion as we come to the end. Um, because it says in the Old Testament that God gives rain wonders without number. And this is an article by John Piper, which I've always appreciated. John Piper says this, If you said to somebody, my God does great and unsearchable things, he does wonders without number, and they said, really, like what? And you said, rain. Would you be impressed? Is rain a great and unsearchable wonder wrought by God? Well, picture yourself as a farmer in the Near East, far from any lake or stream. A few wells keep the family and animals supplied with water, but if the crops are to grow and the family is to be fed, water has to come from another source. From where? Well, the sky. Water will come out of the sky. Water will have to be carried in the sky from the Mediterranean over several hundred miles and then be poured out from the sky onto the fields. Carried? How much does it weigh? Well, if one inch of rain falls in one square mile of farmland during the night, that would be 27,878,400 cubic feet of water, which is 206,300,160 gallons, which is 1,650,501 something something pounds of water. It's a lot. So how does it get up in the sky and stay there? Well, it gets up by evaporation. Really? Nice word. What does it mean? It means the water sort of stops being water for a while, so it can go up and not down. Well, how does it get down? Well, condensation happens. What's that? The water starts becoming water again by gathering around little dust particles between 0.0001 and 0.0001 centimetres wide. What about the salt? Salt, yes, the Mediterranean... Sea is salt water. That will kill the crops. What about the salt? Well, the salt has to be taken out. So the sky picks up a billion pounds of water from the sea and takes out the salt and then carries it for 300 miles and dumps it on the farm. Well, it doesn't dump it because if it dumped a billion pounds of water on the farm, the wheat would be crushed. So the sky dribbles the billion pounds of water down in little drops. And they have to be big enough to fall for one mile or so without evaporating and small enough to keep from crushing the wheat stalks. How do these microscopic specks of water that weigh a billion pounds get heavy enough to fall? Well, it's called coalescence. What's that? It means the specks of water start bumping into each other and join up and get bigger. 
and when they're big enough, they fall, just like that. Well, not exactly, because they would bounce off each other instead of joining up if there were no electric field present. What? Never mind. Take my word for it. <laughs> so I think I will take Job's word for it. I still don't see why drops ever get to the ground, because if they start falling as soon as they're heavier than air, they'd be too small not to evaporate on the way down. But if they wait to come down, what holds them up till they're big enough not to evaporate? I'm sure there's a name for that too. But I'm satisfied now that by any name, this is a great and unsearchable thing that God has done, and I think we should be more thankful than we are. Think about it as the rain comes down today. <laughs>